I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And we're the Trade Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about President Trump's latest tariff threat against Mexico and unpack what it means for USMCA consumers and businesses on both sides of the border. Stock markets are in turmoil this morning after the president promised to levy new tariffs on Mexico unless they stop the flow of migrants to the U.S. Plus, we're joined by CSIS's very own Heather Conley to discuss the recent European Parliament elections, Brexit, and President Trump's visit to the U.K. and France. Gentlemen. The big question facing everybody on USMACA, as Scott is fond to call it, uh, the U.S.-Mexico, US, what is it now? What do we call US, it? U.S.-Canada-Mexico Agreement. It Wait, it for. depends on where you are. But In it, Canada, right. it's CUSMA. CUSMA. Canada-U.S. In we, Mexico, it's MUSCA, Mexico-U.S. Here, it's USMCA. And some people call it the new NAFTA. And if you want to have a bad pun, it's USMACA. <laughs> okay, so we'll just take your choice. We'll go with you, Smacka. Big question. Is President Trump bluffing on these new tariffs? No, I don't think he's bluffing. I think it's a classic leverage move on his part. He only has one tactic, which is, you know, to hit the other people in the face and hope they'll fold. Uh, and he does it with 10 days warning, sort of 11 days warning. They don't go into effect till June 10th. The Mexicans quickly have rushed up here. They're here now. Negotiations are to be, I think, tomorrow. Uh, or Wednesday, and uh, we'll see. I mean, I think his tactic is always get them to do what I want by threatening to do something horrible. Um, and I think he, I think he, I think he means it in the, in the sense that if they don't do what he wants, uh, he'll put the tariffs into effect, which would be disaster on many levels. Well, let's, let's talk about it. The immediate disaster was the stock market dropped. Precipitously. Well, that's a six-week phenomenon at this point. The Dow's been soft for six Tell weeks. Tell that to the guy who tried to retire the other day. Right. It's not good. Okay. Yeah. The, the uncertainty is definitely uh, definitely playing into investor concerns. Bill makes the point, this is a pure, purely tactical. This is really not about a change to American trade policy in any way. It is the president being frustrated with a lack of cooperation and taking action to incentivize the cooperation. Leverage is exactly the right word for it. It just happened that, and frankly, the statute that gave him the authority to do it, Emergency Economic Powers Act, is pretty broad latitude. There, Lawyers will disagree whether it applies to tariffs, but it's one instrument the president has that's pretty much a blunt instrument. But it is, it appears to me that it is exactly what he says it is. We need something to change here, and if you don't change it, I'm going to do something bad. Okay, so what he got was over the weekend, the Mexicans rushed representatives here. So it makes Trump look like he does have leverage and he is powerful. That's a good thing if you're President Trump. No? We'll see. I think the long-term uh, bad effect, which is too late to fix, is it casts doubt on the credibility of management of our trade policy. We just made an agreement with the Mexicans. And not only did we just make an agreement, less than a month ago, we dropped the tariff, the steel tariffs. And now he's turning around and reimposing worse, more tariffs potentially than then. If I were a foreigner, I would say, what is the point of making an agreement with the Americans? They think, don't keep them. I think the expression is arbitrary and capricious. That That's the way we look. I mean, we look unreliable. 
And does it undercut? I mean, Lighthizer couldn't have been too happy about this. The gossip is that he was against it. Right. It definitely makes his job more difficult. Treasury Secretary as well. What I heard was neither was happy, and they both felt undercut. And I think they were both focused on trying to get USMACA through the Congress, which would be an important policy victory for the president and, and a deserved one, except that he's... Stepping all over himself. Keep, it's going to make it much harder. Keep in mind, uh, USMCA has two partners, both of whom whose legislatures were taking it up, uh, both the Assembly in Mexico, General, the National Assembly, and the Canadian Parliament. Right now. Right now are considering USMCA. This is not a, you know, it doesn't help. Okay, so please tell me how this is good politics for the president, because on the one hand, he doesn't get what he wanted passed, which would have been a, a great thing, as you said, and deservedly so. On the other hand... He's, in, at least in the short term, hurting the economy, and the people that he's hurting are the people that vote for him, both at the high end and at the low end. So how is this good politics Hang on, in the long uh, run? Just a second. Nobody's been hurt yet because the tariffs haven't gone into effect. It's a week from but, today until they I go kind of felt bad, though. This well, made me feel a little bit. Okay, bad. well, I... <laughs> You're worried about you, your guacamole and your tequila. You said it. Lindsey Graham said it, actually. Oh, did he? <laughs> if, if you have a millennial in the house, it's guacamole toast. Yeah. That is of, of great concern. They call it avocado. Avocado toast. toast that's yeah. right. You're we'll right. go with guacamole, though. We're old school. Definitely. Uh, there, there are worries, but there's no actual harm yet. No agreement's been made one way or the other. And USMCA is still before the Congress. The job is more difficult when we're doing this, much as when, when the, the steel and aluminum tariffs persisted. That was a problem for the Congress. Once they're lifted, once again, you, you eliminate that threshold issue. These tariffs, if they even go into effect, will be another threshold issue that will prevent its consideration. But it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate it. It's only good for him politically if he can say that it stopped the influx of migrants at the border. His signature campaign issue is going to be migration. Yep. Trade will be up there, but immigration right. will be number one. His rationale for doing this is that the Mexicans are not doing enough to stop the migrants. So uh, if they turn around and do something and the number of migrants goes down, he looks good politically. So does he have any evidence that they actually can do something to stop No. He isn't even clear about what he wants them to do. He just wants it to stop. Okay, I mean, so he wants it to stop. You know, Scott's saying no one was hurt yet, but I can't tell you how many text calls and emails I got over the last few days saying, and these aren't for anti-Trumpers either. These are just for legitimate people saying, is the president trying to wreck the economy? Is he just trying to be all powerful? Well, what is he trying to do? I, I had a lot of uh, people ask yeah, me that. I, I personally don't see it that way. And for me, it's a leverage move. It's one. But he has great frustration over this migration problem, which exists because of a law on refugees uh, that was in t- written with the idea of refugees from basically the Middle East or someplace a lot further from the United States. Mexico and Canada were excluded from this, but then Mexico is an asylum state as well. So uh, as as president sees it, I think he would say that that if, if people from the Northern Triangle want to escape uh, uh, bad situation or more importantly repression, the kinds of things that generate a legitimate asylum claim, they could they could uh, they could re- request asylum in Mexico. They don't have to come all the way to the U.S. So what he's dealing with is a situation where uh, about a million people so far have come to the U.S. Uh, we know from history the 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 uh, claims. Are, are, their asylum claims are successful in a very small minority of the of the occasions that the, there's actually a hearing. Uh, so he sees it as an abuse of our law and no help from Mexico, which is also an asylum country. 
where where they where they, where they could they uh, an asylum declaration by someone from the Northern Triangle could be made without traversing the entire length of Mexico. So I think he's I think he's just frustrated with the, with the fact that he's got no help from Congress or 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 any of the governments involved, and he just decided to take action. The financial analysts are saying that. Uh, you know, it's five percent on June tenth, and then the first of every successive month it goes up five more. Right. If nothing's happening until it hits twenty-five, the financial analysts say say if it's five or ten, it won't make a lot of difference. When it gets fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, then it's going to be significant. Well, the peso dropped more than five percent on Friday. So well, that, that's that offsets, which it. would offset it. So when it gets tariff. to twenty-five percent, that's when we say holy guacamole. Well, yes, and well, the big losers will be avocado eaters. The biggest loser will be the automobile industry. I mean, the thing that How so? because well, the supply chains were built around free trade. Yes, they were de- they were designed to function in an environment of zero tariffs. I think Scott pointed this out before. Mexico is now our biggest trading partner. Sure, we import more stuff from Mexico than we do from China, believe it or not, as of March, and uh, a third of that is autos or auto parts. Well, so total U.S. They're the primary victims here, and their supply chains are going to be crippled right. by this tariff. Okay, so total U.S. exports to Mexico in 2018. Two hundred and sixty-five billion. That was behind China in eighteen. Nineteen, they've caught up and passed China. Amazing, because of Chinese tariffs, among other things. Top yes. U.S. imports from Mexico: vehicles and parts, electric machinery, oil. And one of the ironies of this is that the other thing the administration wants to happen is to have U.S. companies leave China. They're encouraging them to leave China. Well, one of the places they're looking to go is Mexico. So the president has just stepped all over his China policy. Why are you going to go to Mexico and face possible 25% tariffs when that's what you've already got in China? You know, start it, investing it, in a third country. It, 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 the action undermines the decoupling uh, intention of the administration. You know, it's not a big surprise that we've been dealing with this now for about two and a half years. It's hard to see it as trade policy. That's the only thing that, that it, we're just going to have to figure Let's out. Let's talk about something more pleasant. Before we do, though, I, wanna, I want your predictions on how Mexico is going to handle this. And it, Mexico's president, AMLO, uh, is a tough guy. Andres Manuel uh, Lopez Obrador, or AMLO as we refer to him. He's a pretty tough guy. How is he going to handle this? So far, he's been remarkably restrained and careful and appears to want to solve it. Uh, I think there will be a genuine effort made to do that. At the same time, I predict that— uh, I mean, I bet he doesn't think he's as tough as our president. Well, look— He's chosen to handle it yeah, smartly, I think. I, I think. I think I agree with Bill on AMLO so far, and the president has been very uh, measured. But I would also remind our listeners that during the NAFTA, the NAFTA negotiations, the USMCA negotiations, Mexico did a superbly professional job with a very high context personal negotiation. Face to face, it was classic Latin American negotiations in many ways, but they modeled it and they were able to close with the U.S., uh, well before Canada. So they have people in place, uh, Jesus Seade as being the, the leader of the, the NAFTA negotiations among, and, and, and his counterparts are actually quite good at this. They're quite skillful diplomats. You know, I give them a chance. Let's give them a week. But I will bet you that if the tariffs in the U.S. are imposed, the Mexicans will respond in kind. Oh, yes. And our farmers will be right back where they were a month ago. All right. Let's talk about something more pleasant. And we have someone more pleasant here to do it with us. Well, thank you. We have the most pleasant expert ever to appear on The Trade Guys. And the second time. May I introduce Miss Heather Conley, director of our Europe and Eurasia program, senior vice president at CSIS, 
and our favorite colleague. Oh, well, don't stop. Keep going, guys. We will Thank keep going. you. Heather, but you're here for a reason. There's a lot going on in Europe. There yes. were the EU elections, Brexit, and President Trump, as we speak, today is in the United Kingdom. For a state visit. State visit. Mm-hmm. What do you have to tell us? Well, gosh, let's start with the European Parliament elections. That was big. Um, that was big. Uh, that was a triumph of democracy, although Ambassador Bolton in an op-ed thought the uh, 2016 Brexit referendum was in fact a, a triumph of democracy. But this actually was important. An increase in voter turnout, which was fantastic because usually these elections uh, turnout tends to be a little low. Uh, this, the prize was 751 seats in the European Parliament. This election occurs every five years. So with increased turnout, three things happened simultaneously. The first thing that happened was, I would call them the World War II establishment parties. So the center-left, Social Democrats, the center-right, the Christian Democrats, for want of better term, they both uh, declined. Uh, and this has been a trend in Europe. Those traditional center parties have been in a slow state of collapse for really the last decade. So that's that's like Merkel's people. Yeah. So the European People's Party, which is the pan-European center-right party, which of course includes uh, Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Unionist Party, and then the center-left, which is basically a combination of social democrats across Europe. They did not do well. They lost, and they've been hemorrhaging voters. Who's the personification of that? So the personification, and this, this gets in sort of the contest, Europe is trying to create sort of this this real feel of, of a race of direct democracy. So each party is supposed to put forward their lead candidate. So in fact, it feels like a presidential campaign, that there's one person that's attached to a pan-European party. This is for what position? So yeah. this, um, uh, they call it a German term called a Spitzenkandidaten. And what that is, it's the leading candidate for a political grouping. And they, they campaign across the EU. And so you're hoping that when a European citizen goes to vote, even though they may be in Slovakia, that they will think about that lead candidate because they would like that lead candidate to be the president of the European Commission, That's... the executive. And there's other senior leadership positions as well. The problem is it doesn't work like that because there aren't national lists. And these elections, these are 28 separate national elections that focus on a lot of local issues. A lot of it's a protest vote against the government. But this this election, certainly there were European issues. Migration, of course, as you were talking about in the Mexico contest, is top of mind for Europeans. Uh, also, austerity and just you know economic cuts. Uh, and really a reaction, I call it the Brexit effect, the reaction uh, from the Brexit referendum that Europeans are like, hey, we can't take this for granted. If we believe in this project, we have to support it. So these the, the candidates and these elections were happening. So as I said, the first trend was those uh, establishment parties didn't do well. The good news was the second trend, a new centrism is coming to the fore. And this was what we called the green wave. So the green parties pretty much across the spectrum did well. I love the green well. wave because that's Tulane's nickname, the, the green, green wave. wave. The green wave. But I know that has nothing to do with nothing Europe. To but I just nothing. had to jump in well, on thank that. You. Sorry. And then the new sort of liberals, um, so this they did very well. So the older parties didn't do well. This new centrism and green came forward, which is exciting. When did the Greens become the center? 
See, this were always the left. Really, when the the center left has been in this slow state of collapse, the Greens became a viable alternative. They aren't extreme. They hold centrist positions. They're pro-European, and quite frankly, for most of the countries, the Green Party has been hold on to it consistent, not changing their views, whether it's migration or anything. They've been consistent and steady. And that's where a lot of those social Democrats have gone. In Germany right now, just an anecdote, a, a poll just came out over the weekend. The, Green, the German Greens are now polling as the largest party in Germany. Really? So we can talk about Germany separately. Wow. But so this this is this is growing across. So that was a rising force. The other rising force, which is the bad news, sort of giving you the good, the bad and the ugly, was that the Euroskeptic uh, percentage in the European Parliament increased from 20 percent from 2014 to about 25 percent. Um, and so this is no longer fringe. Yeah, this a is quarter, a quarter of the voters. A quarter is not a of the voters. Yeah, this this is here to stay. And again, these Euroskeptics are not interested in leaving the European Union. They're interested in changing the European Union from within in their own image. It's a completely different thing. So. From, from these three trends, what you have now is, is a problem. It's a consternation for European leaders because now they need three, if not four, of these political groupings to carve out a majority in the European Parliament. This makes the, the jobs, you know, who becomes the European Commission president, who becomes the European Union foreign minister, who becomes the next head of the European Central Bank, which is a very important position, who becomes eventually the president of the European Parliament. These major positions now, there's a real jockeying. And this whole concept of this Spitzenkandidaten or this lead candidate has sort of, it's not dead yet, but it's sort of gotten to a point of people aren't sure where they're going to go. So the European leaders will meet June 20th to 21st. And hopefully their desire is to sort all of this out. But I think it's going to take a while to sort. Now, as a footnote, could you talk a little bit about what happened in the UK? Because there, the conventional parties got demolished. I mean, conservatives came in fifth, if I recall, and conservatives plus labor was only 25% of the vote. And those parties covered basically all voters maybe five years ago. So what's going on? So again, this was the election that should have never happened. So if things had gone according to plan, uh, the UK would have departed the European Union on March 29th, right. never needing these elections. But because they have failed to, to uh, get through the House of Commons, the withdrawal agreement, they had to participate in these European Parliament elections. So it was not a very well-prepared election. Uh, the Conservative Party really wasn't competing in the election. And I think this is the biggest takeaway from British politics today. There is no more left and right in, in the British political spectrum. There is only leave or remain. And so the parties that had the clearest view on whether to leave, which is now Nigel Farage's brand new, like three-week-old Brexit party, and the Liberal Democrats, the Lib Dems, that have always been the strongest Remain party. They came out very strong because they were clear and consistent. Labor is so twisted and tortured on Brexit. You have, it, just as the Conservative Party is twisted and contorted on Brexit, they fared very poorly. So now, but it was a real national indication of um, if there is a general election to be held, 
this is just going to be uh, potentially a bloodbath for both the conservative party and certainly not labor's finest hour so what's as well. So what's this mean as a next step? I mean, it seems like Brexit means Brexit, according to the voters, but there's still not a majority for any Brexit plan in the parliament. So who does what now? So uh, when the EU gave uh, the UK their latest extension, six months to October 31st, yes, I am already telling you, I'm naming the commentary, trick or treat when we get there. <laughs> but when, when they were given that uh, six month, the European Council president, uh, Donald Tusk, uh, former Polish prime minister, gave the UK the admonishment, don't waste this time. Use this time, get it through. And what is the UK doing? Wasting time. Wasting time like nobody's business. But that's human nature. I mean, look at the Congress. Everything happens the day before the deadline. I mean, why expect anything yeah, else? So what they're occupying themselves with now, first they had to get through the European Parliament election that they should never have had. Now, Theresa May has um, resigned. She, her last day will be on June the 7th. So the state visit is her grand finale. Uh, she'll go into caretaker status. And now the Conservative Party <laughs> is having a leadership contest. As of this morning, there are now 13 Conservative Party contenders. Almost as good as the Democrats They're getting here. there. They're getting there. And I so the Democrats have like 25. Well, they got a little ways to go. So what happens is the members of parliament of the conservative party whittle down this field of today, 13, could be more, eventually to two. And then the two finalists go out and then uh, the conservative party membership of about 120,000 will then vote on oh, these it's a popular. Leaders. It's not just among members. It, it's only the members of the conservative members of the party. So members only the, of the hundred, party, but but so not, the MPs, but not MPs. The MPs whittle it down. Okay. The final two candidates go to the membership of the conservative oh, party. So the anticipation is we will have a new prime minister. Uh, if you're optimistic, mid July. If you're if there's a little time crunch here, probably end of July. So nothing is going to happen on this until the end of July. And then the House of Commons, unless change, goes on their August recess. So really, we're going to get back down to this in September. And you're absolutely right. The math doesn't change of how the House of Commons will work. The question is, is the next prime minister going to subscribe to a no-deal exit? And that's certainly what the leading candidate, Boris Johnson, has said. He has said he will bring the UK out of the EU on October 31st. No extensions. If he can't get you know a new deal, no extensions. They'll leave under WTO rules. Can you can you pack the party? I mean, could the Brexit voters, you know, thirty thousand of them, go off and suddenly join the Conservative Party and stack the deck? I don't not? know my all the rules. I think it is too late to do that now. I mean, it's something you pay a five pound or twenty pound fee or whatever it is. I think that point, it, but it's a very small, super small yeah. subsection of the population of the country that will choose the next prime minister. Does labor do it the same way? Just labor, labor has a, it, their, their threshold is much lower. Uh, and they all the, the parties will have a party convention. Uh, I think that the Tory convention is actually extremely early this year. It's like end of September, hmm. which you can imagine will be a very raucous uh, convention. Labor has a slightly different threshold. And when they went through their leadership contest, uh, there was a very low threshold. And you're absolutely right. A lot of young people joined the Labor Party known as the movement, very supportive of uh, labor leader Jeremy Corbyn. And that actually helped push him and helps protect him as the party leader when many of his 
his own members of parliament and his party very much disagree with him. So it can work it can work both mm. ways. So we're going to go through a leadership contest. And then that new prime minister is going to go, well, I'm going to go to Brussels and I'm going to negotiate a new deal. The EU has told them, nope, sorry, the deal is the deal. Take it or leave it. But they feel that they weren't tough enough on Brussels. So they'll go through that time lag and then they'll come back and then they're going to have to decide whether they're going to seek another extension. They're going to leave on a no deal or... Uh, can Parliament step in in any way and try to basically wrest control of this from government and try to do a series of indicative votes or laws that would prevent a no-deal exit? Guys, I have no idea. The other scenario is we could actually go to an early election before October the 31st, potentially. If a vote of confidence is held against the new prime minister running, so Boris Johnson becomes the next prime minister, it, would there be enough uh, Tories and Labour and Lim Debs who want to block a no deal would join together with a vote of no confidence if that would be successful and a government couldn't form, a new prime minister couldn't be formed in 14 days, then they go to early elections. So lots of different uh, uh, routes to go here, but it looks increasingly like no deal. Yeah. To be honest with you, what this whole thing has been about since 2013, since David Cameron first proposed the holding of a referendum, it was always keeping the party together was always more important than the country. That continues to be true today. Um, and it's it's the tragedy of, of where we are and the consequences of, of those decisions. Do you think um, President Trump's there now? He has said that he may meet with uh, Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson during his visit. Do you think he will? And if he does, what does that indicate? I think he will. Um, I think it will likely happen. There'll be a dinner um, Tuesday evening at uh, the U.S. ambassador's residence, Winfield House, Ambassador Woody Johnson. Uh, what happens on U.S. soil is uh, up to the U.S. in yeah. many ways. Uh, and the, the British government has, has said that, although they have said this would be inappropriate. I would like to put the, the shoe on the other foot. Let's say... Um, well, whether it's Theresa May or let's say if Boris Johnson would come to the U.S. and he'd decide to have a coffee with Joe Biden. Sure. Wow. Wow. Because he thinks he's a terrific guy and is doing great things for the country. Wouldn't that be he a is. wouldn't that be a, a a real insult to President Trump as you were hosting this leader? Of course it is. You have to imagine how this, particularly in a leadership contest, particularly in a a moment that the U.K. is so polarized, so divided. This doesn't help. And of course, Nigel Farage, uh, not only helping to break up the conservative party, which does not help Boris Johnson at all, but uh, the president, you know, let's be clear, he's consistent, uh, consistent in he, he, like who he supports, <laughs> he has always supported Brexit. He yes. thinks this is a great thing. He thinks the mm -hmm. EU is a foe. And of course, Ambassador Bolton, as I referred to in, in, a, in an op-ed said, this is really, this is the UK's Independence Day and the UK will be so much better off when it cleanly leaves. How is that going to play out for our trade relationship? Well, this is where, um, you know, the rhetoric of, it's, you know, it's going to be so quick and easy to have a massive trade deal after the UK leaves the EU. What has occurred over the last two and a half years is uh, USTR and uh, the, the UK 
uh, office that deals with international trade have been in working groups. So they've been working and trying to, to shape a framework for a future U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement. They haven't yet invited the trade guys to tea. Ah, uh, well, that could be a next and positive step in the uh, right look, direction. I think, plenty of time. I think there's plenty of time for that. <laughs> yeah, because, we, look, I, I don't we don't know sp- the relationship. Our processes are such that nothing is fast, nothing is quick, nothing is decisive. We'll be pulled out of a hat. Right. Well, we we honestly don't know what the future relationship the UK will have with the European Union. Right. If they go to a permanent customs union, even a single market, there's not going to be space for a bilateral negotiation. Now, if they leave under WTO rules, okay, that would certainly open an opportunity. But this, getting back to again your your conversation on on Mexico. Everything is leverage. The UK is at a moment of weakness. We're going to use, we're not going to help them. We're going to use every piece of leverage that we have to get what is in our interest. So for those in the UK who see that it's okay to leave the EU because the the US uh, trade relationship is going to be vastly more important in the future, I think misunderstand how much the US is going to take its leverage and actually force the UK into a choice between the European market and the American market. And quite frankly, I, I'm not sure that the British would choose the American market no, right now. No, I agree now. with you. They're, they have much more trade with the continent than yes. they do with oh. us. Uh, we, we will, I think you're exactly right, we will insist on them adopting our position on GIs, on geographical indications, on genetically modified organisms. They'll insist, will insist that they adopt our health, safety, environmental standards, all of which will make their products unacceptable in the EU. I mean, it's just uh, no, I, why they you, would do that would make no make then sense. Then add into that the, the fact that our processes take so long. All right, this transition period, however long it is, it will be longer if the United States is involved with a free trade agreement with Britain. That's a three to six year project, depending on how, how much urgency uh, is delivered. Now, there is a solution. Yes. Which is, well, maybe we have different ones, but <laughs> mine would be if the United States and the EU could negotiate an agreement that would harmonize a lot of these issues, then the UK doesn't have the same problem. Well, that would be the good news if things were going positively for the US-EU trade talks, which again is really a mechanism created last July to try to stave off US auto parts tariffs against Right. The EU. So this is this is an exercise in trying to prevent something bad from happening, not necessarily seeking opportunity. And the context for, for that is it goes back to 2010, and the TTIP process, which has been going nowhere fast, and is likely to go nowhere fast in at least in our lifetimes. Well, this is the the, the frustrating part, you know. And, and to the to the EU's credit, they are buying more LNG. They are buying more soybeans. I mean, they're trying to show that they're doing the right thing. But the steel and aluminum tariffs are still on track. Um, I, I, you know, the six month pre reprieve notwithstanding, this is still a, a very active threat. And you're absolutely right. The regulatory harmonization is where the money is, and that's where it's, where, it's the most where difficult the to do. Yeah, where, exactly. Where nobody wants. That brings us sort of full circle. How will the new parliament and the new commission change any of that? Are we in for five more years of the same impasse, or do you think they'll bring in fresh thinking on their side? So this is where the timing for both of us has always screwed up any positive uh, results coming from the U.S.-EU trade talks. Because this year was the year of elections, so new European parliament, which is, I read, 
the, the shape of the new groupings, it's going to be harder. You're going to have the greens that are going to want the highest environmental protections, workers' protections. You have the liberals, oh, anti-competition, very worried about big tech, very worried about data protection. They're not enthusiastic about this. I mean, the EU is enthusiastic about free trade agreements to sort of dem demonstrate the international liberal trade order still exists. Uh, but there's, it's unpopular. Free trade is unpopular in Europe, as it's largely uh, somewhat here in the U.S. So you have a new parliament that's going to want to review things. You're going to have a new commission seated on November the 1st. They're going to review mandates. You're going to, however, these is all sorted out. And of course, once they get their house in order, then we go into an election cycle. It's just, you know, uh, these democracies, they just keep having elections. It's going to be a real challenge Trump would to say get that's this a flaw, through. You know, well, we, um, dispense with the election. No, no, no. Be. These are good things. But it's, it's complicated uh, to get tough things on where people look. There is an increasing protectionist stance in Europe. Uh, from France to Italy, industrial policy now is is in fashion. Germany and France are now advocating for an industrial policy to try to mitigate both China and the United States. Uh, but we've seen across the board a weakening in the eurozone economy, and they're not as well prepared to handle the next financial crisis. Their banks are not strong. You now have Italy and the Italian government wanting to throw a lot of challenges to the EU while they're managing Brexit, and while you have now a political transition process going on in Germany, um, that means that not a lot can happen. So th this is sort of a, uh, it's a real stagnation point. Now they're, they're not being able to take strong actions, a defensive crouch, but this is not a, a Europe that can make big, bold decisions. And of course, they can't trust Washington, again, getting back to Mexico, even when you have an agreement, you don't have an agreement. We're an unreliable partner. Exactly. I think it won't be long till the NGO that created the TTIP Trojan horse that used to be on the Grand Place in Brussels. I think that's kind of things coming out of storage. It'll be back there before we know it. Probably. Heather, all I know is, is somebody better invite you to tea over there fast because oh. you have all the answers. No, no. Thank you for being Thank with you. us here today on The Trade Guys. Um, please come back soon. I bet you we will have you back before anyone comes here twice. Oh, well, I love being here with you guys. Thank right. you for the invitation. Thanks for being here. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.